I really cannot imagine that there's anyone here this evening that at some point in his life or her life has not wanted a do-over. Things happen and, and we want a chance to repeat. Maybe it's a, a building project of some kind. We, we begin a project and it just royally flops. Yet, before it graciously flops, we manage to spend two or three times what we expect to spend. And then we're totally unpleased with the, the results. We want a do-over. Or maybe it's a, a conversation with a friend. And in the midst of that conversation, we throw in a careless statement before we know we've caused hurt to someone that, that we do care about. Again, we want to do over. Maybe we've caused an accident with our vehicle and we know that we sure wish we had to do over. We'd check that blind spot a little more carefully or we'd be a little more patient at the, the red light. Life is filled with these kinds of experiences where we wish that life came with this rewind feature and we could just back up a little ways and, and do it again. And we would make different choices trying to, to ensure that things turned out differently in the end. For, for myself, one of the times I often regret and, and, and wish I had to do over, it, it comes in the area of evangelism. A after the fact, I'll mentally replay a, an interaction that I've had with someone, and I realize that I had a perfect opportunity to share the gospel. And the regret comes in that I did not. Sometimes it was I was too focused on my own desires. I had my schedule and I just didn't have time for this, at least in my opinion. Sometimes I was just too slow in my thinking and it's not until afterwards when I work it through, it's like, oh, I had a chance here. Why didn't I see it at the time? And then sometimes when I look at it, I might just be too cowardly. Uh, I willfully let the opportunity pass because I think the person won't receive it well and I just let it slide right on by. Whatever the case, as I review the situation in my own mind, I really, really want a do-over. This week, we're going to see that God gives Jonah a do-over. And from Jonah's experience, we should find some encouragement, I believe, for our lives as well. Last week, if you were here, you recall that we left Jonah unceremoniously vomited up onto a beach somewhere. That's where we walked away. He was cast up that fish vomited him up, and there he lay. Well, Jonah had tried, as you recall, to flat out avoid God's command in chapter 1. God had told him to warn Nineveh of their pending destruction. And Jonah had tried to avoid that by traveling by ship as far in the other direction from Nineveh as he could possibly go. I'm sure you remember God quickly arrested his attempt by throwing a storm that direction. And it wasn't too long that before Jonah had revealed to the sailors that the only way they'd survive would be to throw him into the water because the storm was his fault. The sailors eventually did so, and just before Jonah perished, God sent that great fish to preserve his life. And that fish came along and swallowed Jonah. As we looked at chapter 2 last week, we found Jonah surprised, I imagine, to discover that he was alive. Surely he was also surprised to realize he's in the belly of a fish. But above the surprise, what we saw was that Jonah rejoiced that God had heard his cry as he sunk beneath the waves and that God had graciously granted him continued life. We, we read the poetic record of chapter 2 where Jonah had prepared this poetic record of the prayer that he had prayed from the belly of the fish, a, a prayer of remorse. 
That prayer revealed at the end that he finally at last recalls that that salvation is from the Lord. So securing the hope that the God's not finished with him yet, Jonah was waiting. He was waiting for whatever would come next. And what came next was that God commanded that fish to just vomit Jonah, and he had that unceremonious exit and landed back on dry land. Well, that brings us to chapter 3 in the book of Jonah. Again, as in the, the last couple of weeks, we're going to work our way through the chapter, and then we'll consider how this chapter may apply to our current lives. We'll break the chapter into four sections tonight, four sections that just kind of logically fall out. The, the first section is verses 1 and 2, and in these first two verses, what we have is God's command. Look at these verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. We find God speaking to Jonah a second time. Our author is careful to record that this is the second time, but he also is careful to record this verse nearly word for word as the opening remarks of the book were recorded. That, that's the author's way of telling us that, that Jonah here is being offered a new beginning, a, a second chance, a, a do-over, if you will. God is giving Jonah a do again. Once again, God uses that double imperative, arise, go. Once more, Nineveh is set as, as Jonah's destination. In, in fact, if you compare verse 2 of, of chapter 3 and verse 2 of chapter 1, the main difference is that in chapter 1, God tells Jonah why he is to proclaim his message to Nineveh. He's to proclaim because Nineveh is wicked. Here in chapter 3, God tells Jonah how he will know what his message is that he is to proclaim. This time, the emphasis is on this divine origin of, of Jonah's proclamation. Jonah has disregarded God's initial command. That the command is repeated, arise, go, speak to them. But now Jonah is, is informed that God is going to tell him exactly what he is to say. The implication is that Jonah's obedience has to include communicating the message exactly as God has given it to him. Obeying by, by going where God sends him will, will not suffice. Jonah must say what God tells him to say as well. There's one other tiny variation if we compare these two occurrences of verse 2 and chapter 1, chapter 3. In chapter 1, Jonah is told, cry against the city of Nineveh. This time he's told to cry to the city. It's a very minor difference against verses 2. Uh, but the first time clearly indicates that Jonah, he's to denounce this wicked city. He's to denounce them because of their wickedness. This time, all that Jonah is told is that he will merely proclaim God's message to the city. But that's God's command. God has spoken. He's given Jonah a renewed command. From here on, the, the remainder of the chapter largely involves responses. Responses of various individuals that occur as a result of the action that, that, that God's command here unleashes. The first response is Jonah in verses 3 and 4. We have Jonah's response. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Unlike the first time around, this time, this do-over, Jonah is now ready to comply with God's commands. He immediately obeys the command. He obeys the command to arise. God said, arise. We're told Jonah arose. Likewise, he immediately obeys the command to go. God tells Jonah, go. We're told Jonah went. He went to Nineveh. And in case we miss it, we're, we're not quite astute enough to catch those. Our author also tells us very helpfully that Jonah does this according to the word of the Lord. Jonah's doing exactly what God tells him to do. No argument, no delay, no protesting, just straightforward obedience. Now, we have no idea where the the fish helpfully um, deposited Jonah, where he was spit out, so we really have no idea how long it took Jonah to travel to Nineveh. Our author skips all of the journey. He skips over the details of Jonah's journey and essentially drops us into the story as Jonah arrives at the city. We're told Nineveh is a great city, a three days walk. Most likely, that three days walk means that you've got the city core and then a number of villages around. You wouldn't really have suburbs in those days, but you'd have villages with, with pastures and things in between. So most likely... Scholars understand this to mean that from the time he hit the first village associated with the city, walked through all the way the outskirting villages through the city, through the outskirts of the villages on the other side, it would take three days. That's one way of looking at it. Some authors suggest maybe it's just walking around the city takes three days. Whatever is the case, the point is being made this is a large city, and what the author wants us to notice is that The moment Jonah hits the outskirts, the moment he gets there, he begins communicating the message that God has given him to communicate. The moment he strikes the outskirts, he starts crying out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He does that on day one. He doesn't wait for day one and a half or that would take to get to the middle. The second day, he just immediately starts doing that. The image that really should come to our mind is, is this man who's wandering around through the streets. He's, you know, things are not laid out in our grid like we have here in Sterling Heights where you have straight north, south, east, west roads. You've got meanderings of trails between the houses. And Jonah's wandering through these streets, and as he, he's slowly wandering his way towards the center of the city, he's crying out these words whenever he encounters groups of people. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Moves on to the next group. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. If you think about it, Jonah's activity is recorded here with remarkable brevity. In the original Hebrew, the the message is recorded in only five words. Now, we have no idea if Jonah expanded on these five words or not. Um, We're not told he did. And if you think about it, most likely Jonah would have proclaimed his message in Assyrian rather than Hebrew. He would have done that so that the common people, the the citizens of of Nineveh, could understand him. Now, I don't know if Jonah was fluent in Assyrian or not, but if he wasn't, it's possible that his message was this short, that he knew these five words. If we were to sum up Jonah's response to God, though, I would use the word obey. That's his response, obey. Jonah obeyed immediately. 
As soon as he reached the city, he obeyed completely. He told them exactly the message God had given. He proclaimed the message of condemnation to people throughout the city. We assume from the narrative that that this was exactly the words that God had given him to proclaim. Jonah certainly did not shade the message to pass along encouraging words. He obediently pronounced a message of doom and pronounced that this message was from God. Now, we've seen Jonah's response to God, and we can sum it up, as I said, in the word obey this time around. Now, we'll move on to those who heard Jonah's proclamation. Let's look at Nineveh's response, verses 5 through 9. It really is surprising. Our author gives more attention to the response of the Ninevites than than he does to Jonah's actions. Picking up in verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh, believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This really is every preacher's dream. The the clear implication is that there is a citywide revival at this point. Jonah's preaching has immediate response and is broad-reaching throughout the city. As far as we can tell, we actually have no indication that Jonah preached beyond the first day. We're told that he preached on day one, and then we hear nothing else about Jonah. Yet his preaching clearly sparks sparks the citywide revival. Verse 5 tells us that, that the response is unanimous. From the greatest to the least, all people in the city believed in God. Now, we really don't have to understand believed in God to mean that, that all these people became true worshipers of Yahweh. If you think about it, clearly if Jonah's preaching was limited to these five words, the, the people did not have enough understanding of Yahweh to truly become a worshiper of him. Rather, the, the phrase believed in God can mean that the people believed that this Hebrew God, the, this, this God of Jonah, this God that that was behind this prophet, that this God was able to do and would do exactly what Jonah had said. They, they believed, in other words, that their destruction was imminent and that it was coming from this Hebrew God. Now, as a quick aside, of course, we, we cannot ignore the, the words of, of Christ in, in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, we... He mentions the response of the Ninevites. And just for a moment, if you would turn there with me, Luke 11. In Luke 11, starting down in verse 29, our, our Lord is referring to, to his generation, but then he uses a, a reference to Jonah as he rebukes his generation. Jesus is castigating the crowds for for seeking a sign that that he's the Messiah. And he's already given them a lot of signs, and yet they want more. So in verse 32, he says, 
the men of Nineveh will stand up with, with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Clearly, our Lord here is making a connection between the response that we just read in Jonah chapter 3 and the response that he's experienced among the Jews in his day. And in the comparison, the Jews of his generation are coming out much worse than the, the, the citizens of Nineveh. The Ninevites come out favorable. That may suggest that at least some of the Ninevites experienced genuine conversion to, to Yahweh. Although it is significant, I think, in Jonah chapter 3 that the Ninevites, in, in what we have recorded there by our author in, in Jonah 3, they, the Ninevites never used the, the name Yahweh. They refer to God. God in the generic term. They, they don't use the word Yahweh. When we were in chapter 1, the pagan sellers picked up the word for Jonah's God. They used his personal name, Yahweh. We don't have that with Nineveh. It's possible that all our Lord is saying here in Luke 11 is that the Ninevites believe God would do what he said he would do. Whereas the Jews of, of his current generation, they did not believe that God would do what he said he would do because they rejected his arrival. God had promised to send the Messiah. Here he is, and they didn't believe it. So thus, the Ninevites could stand and join in the condemnation of the Jews, even if the Ninevites themselves remain under God's judgment. Also, they can stand up and say, we at least believe God would do what he said he would do, whereas you did not. I'll let you wrestle with, were the Ninevites, any of them truly saved or not? We don't have to come to that conclusion, is my point. I don't know. Turning back to Jonah... In verse 6, our author does add some details, though, to the statement they made that from the greatest to the least, they believed in God. And he adds detail by zooming in on the king, the, the greatest of the great. We're, we're given detail that, that the king got up from his throne. He, he, he cast aside his royal garments. He, he put on sackcloth instead, and then he sat down in ashes rather than returning to his throne. All of these are signs, visible signs, of humility. They're, they're signs of mourning. They're signs of, of re repentance. Notice that we're also told the king did this when the word reached him. Apparently, the response in Nineveh began with the common people. Jonah is starting his preaching as he hits the edge of the city, and as far as we're told, we have no idea if Jonah ever even gained an audience himself with the king, the king may have never heard directly from Jonah, but word reaches the king somehow uh, of the commotion in the city. The, the king hears about this prophet from Israel who's entered his city. He, he hears about this message that this prophet is proclaiming. He hears that his people are responding in repentance to, to this message of doom. And the king follows suit himself, does the same. Furthermore, we're also told that the king issues a royal decree he, he makes repentance the official response of the state to Jonah's message. The, the decree involves the nobles along with the king. All the leaders of the city are called on by the king to undersign the decree, to put their, their names to it as well. The decree states that displays of remorse and repentance are to be evident on every man and every beast. All, man and beast alike, are to fast. 
They're to abstain from food and, and water. Man and beast alike are to be covered in sackcloth. In other words, everywhere you look, there should be a visible sign of repentance. By including the animals, that, that gives us a clear underscoring of, of how severe the, the king and the nobles perceived the, the threat of Jonah's message. They perceived it was so real, so immediate, so urgent that, that they needed to make sure even the animals were included in their signs of repentance. They had no doubt that God could and that God would destroy them. Notice the decree also calls for the men to call on God earnestly. Earnestly. That, that instruction that the king throws into the decree, that, that's reminiscent of several earlier times that, that we've seen urgent calls in this book made to God. In chapter 1, the, the sailors called out urgently to God. And then the sailors urge Jonah to call out to God as well. But, but Jonah actually doesn't get around to calling out to God until he's in the water there in chapter 2. When we hit verse 2, we're told he called out to God. Now that the king is calling on the entire city to call out to God. Even though the king has no knowledge himself personally of these earlier cries to God, that is the response he calls for. What, what is significant is that this pagan king, who, who does not know God, clearly gets three things right. First, he knows that any cry of repentance is meaningless if it is not genuine. It, it has to be heartfelt to be genuine. There, there sh- should be evidence. Evidence is required to display that a heart-level response. That's why he includes in the decree the order that each man must turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. The king doesn't seem to question the the rightness of the condemnation. Rather, it's as if he acknowledges the the wickedness of the city, that that wickedness abounds, and he echoes the the pronouncement of God against Nineveh in in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he calls on them to turn away from their wickedness. God has declared they were wicked, and the king agrees. What the king recognizes is that if the people overall refuse to turn from wickedness, then all the sackcloth in the world is meaningless. There's no number of protestations of of repentance that that can be stacked up that that will matter one iota if it's not backed up with changed actions. The king gets that. Second, the king also, along with his nobles, recognizes that, that God is absolutely free to do as he pleases. Again, I don't see any reason why the king of of Assyria would know much about the Hebrew God, but he understands that a God who is able to destroy him is free to do as he pleases. So the king has no false assumption that all the acts of contrition that are proposed in the decree will compel God to change his mind regarding Nineveh. Unlike Job, if you remember the book of Job and his friends, They thought God was a mechanical God. They thought God operated according to a set of mandatory rules that he had to follow. The king of Nineveh does not see God as a mechanical God. He doesn't see God as a God where the interaction of mankind and God is determined by what mankind does. That God is limited by mankind's actions. Rather, he recognizes God is free to do as he pleases. 
So he knows repentance will not force God to turn from the stated destruction. Yet the third thing that the king gets right is he also recognizes that in God's freedom, that God can do as he chooses, in that freedom lies hope. There's hope for mercy. He says in his decree, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. Since God is free, God can choose to withhold deserved punishment. That's the hope that the king and the nobles include in their decree. They hope that God will choose to to be merciful. In, In their words, they say, so that we will not perish. And again, our author gives us in these words an echo of the earlier hope that the pagan sailors had expressed in chapter 1. When they called out to God, they, they called on God to show mercy so that they would not perish. The king, as well as the pagan sailors, they all recognized that the God can choose to show mercy in his freedom and that God is more inclined to show mercy to those who repent of their wickedness than, than to those who are steadfast in wickedness. God is not mechanical. God is not predictable. God is righteous. God is just. Yet God is also merciful and God is gracious. Summing up all the response here of the Ninevites into one word, the word I would grab is the word repent. That's the word that sums up their response to God. They repent. They repent in hope that merciful God, who is absolutely free to do as he chooses, will not destroy them if they truly repent before him of their wickedness. So having considered Nineveh's response, response of repentance, our chapter closes out with one more response. God's response. Verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Verse 10 uses the verbs turned and relented from verse 9. They're echoed there in verse 10. The king used these words to express his hope that God might turn and relent. Now they're repeated in God's response. God does turn and relent. God sees the evidence of genuine repentance. Not that, that God needs to see the evidence to know the, 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 the state of the human heart. God knows the repentance of the heart, but, but the evidence is there and God sees it and God chooses to relent and not destroy. There, there is a fun wordplay in verse 10. We, we, we don't see it in our English where there's no way to bring it out really well, but the author uses the same word twice. It's the generic word for evil, and he uses it twice in, in the verse. First, he uses the word to say that that they turn from their wicked way. When we have it translated that way, literally what the author says is they turn from their evil. And then he uses a second time when when we have that God relented concerning the calamity which he declared. Literally, God relented concerning the evil that he declared. The, The Hebrew word evil can have a moral nuance to it, but it doesn't have to. So it, it can be used for moral evil. It can be used simply for disaster or calamity. And, and our author uses that dual meaning of the word to, to give us a wordplay. The people turn from their evil so that God would relent toward his evil, from his evil toward them. That, that's the idea. 
In case we don't quite get it, though, even with the wordplay that God turned from it, the author closes out the chapter by, by simply saying, God, he, he, God, did not do it. God decided not to destroy. He turned from the evil that he had planned, the calamity that he had planned for them. I want to spend a, a bit of time on, on God's response be, because often the idea that the God does not do something that he has said he would do creates a bit of a disconnect in our minds. Maybe you're struggling with that even this evening. God always does what he says he will do, right? That, that, that's part of God's faithfulness. That's part of God's tr- truthfulness. God's character demands that, that he fulfill all of his promises. Our, our hope is built on, on that bedrock idea. So what do we do when the Bible clearly states, as it does here in verse 10, that God did not do something that God said he would do? How do we understand that statement without unmooring the the hope that our bedrock understanding of God's character of faithfulness brings to us? After all, God has said, we will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Can we hold on to that or not? If God can change his mind on what he's going to do, where's our bedrock? Well, let's see if we can unravel that a little bit. There's a couple considerations that that I believe will help us untie what what really is kind of an apparent Gordian knot here. Because we can hang on to God's word. I will assure you that as we go. There there are a couple considerations that I think will help us. One, I I did not mention it earlier when we were looking at at verse 4. But there's an interesting element in in the message that God gave Jonah. That short message, that little five-word message that that Jonah conveys, the the final word, the the word overthrown, requires really some more examination. That particular word is found several times in Scripture for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is probably the most well-known destruction of a city in the Bible. We know God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And and this word is used multiple times to refer to that event. In Genesis 19, when it happens, this word overthrown is used for God's destruction. Uh, Lamentations 4.6 points back to that and and uses that word. Amos 4.11 points back to the event again and uses this word overthrown to refer to the absolute destruction of the city. Or cities in Sodom and Gomorrah's case. So in that case, the the word clearly carries the idea of destruction, total destruction. Yet the base meaning of the word that is is used there in Hebrew is simply to turn around. It's a complete turnaround. Frequently, the the word is used to refer to a change of some sort rather than destruction. Now, the change is always a very substantial change. For example, it's used multiple times in, in Exodus chapter 7 to, to describe the, the changing of the Nile River when it turned to blood from water. That's a pretty significant change, going from water to blood. It's overturned. The, the, the water was overthrown by blood. That, that's the significant change. The point is that the word does not have to mean a change for ruin. It can refer to other kinds of changes as well. Jonah's conveying a message of doom, but there's latitude in the message. A a complete change in the people from the wicked standard by which they were living to a standard of righteousness fulfills the prediction to be overthrown. 
By, by way of second consideration, I, I want you to turn to another passage with me. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18. Now, Jeremiah is written significantly later than Jonah. It comes far after Jonah, but I want to look at verses 7 and 8 in Jeremiah chapter 18. God speaks through Jeremiah and says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Jeremiah, as I said, is written much later uh, than, than Jonah, but Jeremiah tells us something about the character of God and, and the nature of prophetic announcements from God. What was clearly stated in Jeremiah is that there is this conditional element to announcements of destruction. God is unchanging in his character. And that means that God is unchanging in what he will do when it comes to judging sin. And God is unchanging in what he will do when it comes to rewarding righteousness. Now, for God to remain unchanging in these things, God at times may adjust his actions because people change. God can relent of announced destruction because people have repented of the wickedness that that brought that destruction upon so that the destruction no longer applies. Now, now we should remember, God is not mandated by, by human actions to do anything. He's God. He, he's free. He's sovereign. God can bring destructive judgment, but God can also bring merciful relentance. He's righteous in either case. So there's no problem with anything we read in Jonah when we put in this larger context of what we understand about God. All is consistent with the character of God as revealed in Scripture. God is consistent with his character. That's the bedrock of our faith, that God is consistent with his character. The word I would use to describe God's response here in Jonah chapter 3 is the word relent. God responds to the repentance of the Ninevites, those who responded to the immediately delivered message of Jonah. God responds by relenting. Now, before we turn to a lesson for ourselves, I do want to note one additional thing here that is not immediately obvious from a cursory reading of, of this chapter, and such as what we've given it tonight. We'd have to spend a lot more time this evening to, to dig this up, but if we spent that time, if we were to take the words that our author has chosen to, to use to assess this reaction here of the Ninevites and God's re reaction or God's response to their reaction, if we would take our time to look at those words and assess those words against the rest of the Old Testament, what we would discover is that our author has used many of the same words for repentance that are used in other places to describe what God requires from Israel. Remember that the book of Jonah is written for Israel, not for Nineveh. It is unlikely you could go into any bookshop ever in the history of Nineveh and find the book of Jonah. That wasn't the audience of the book. The book is for Israel. What God is showing Israel is that this is what repentance looks like. 
This is what he expects of his people. This is what he requires of them. After Jonah, before we come to Jeremiah, God will send prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom as well as more prophets yet to the southern kingdom, all calling for repentance because of their sin. Repentance like what is displayed in the book of Jonah. Repentance by what is displayed through the pagan reactions of those who did not know him the way his own nation, his people, knew him. And yet, sadly, God will not receive repentance from his people. They, they will learn that, that rather than relenting, God is a God who overthrows in destruction. God's people will go into exile because they fail to respond like Nineveh. Now, we won't spend much more time this evening, but, but before we leave, I do think that, that we need to think about our lesson. There, there, there was a lesson for Israel in, in Jonah's experiences. That's clear. That's their lesson. They need to repent like this. But there's also a lesson for us. And I think that lesson comes as we remember that we too have, have a message that God has given us. A, a message of doom, but also a message of hope. The, the lesson that I would like to take out this evening as we go back to the week before us, as we move on with our lives, the message I would like us to take is that God has given us a message, and the message that God has given us demands a response. Our message is a message that demands a response. It's a message from God. First of all, there's a response that's demanded from us. First and foremost, we must respond to the message of God. We've been called by God to, to bear witness to, to the saving power of Christ. Much like Jonah, we've received a commission. This is our message to bear to the world around us. The question is, will we respond with the, the instant obedience that, that we saw here this evening? Arise, go. Will we arise and go? Or will we respond with the disobedience of chapter 1? Coming up with all kinds of excuses to avoid taking the message God has given us. God's message demands a response, first and foremost, from us. Secondly, the, the message that God has given us demands response from those to whom we deliver it. Again, we have a responsibility to communicate the message clearly, and part of that clear communication must be ensuring that people understand that the gospel is an announcement of doom. We call it good news, but the good news comes in the context of announcement of doom. People stand condemned for all eternity because of their sin. People are facing an everlasting destruction. The gospel offers forgiveness. The gospel offers hope. It's available for, through Jesus Christ. But for them to see that hope, they need to hear the clear call to turn from their sin. We need to make sure that they understand that hearing the gospel message necessitates a response a response to which God will hold them accountable forever. And thirdly, we should also recognize that God has promised to respond. God has promised to respond with forgiveness and love to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. There's the hope. That's the good news part of, of the message. God's already relented for us if we know him as Savior. He's already relented of our eternal punishment because Christ 
has borne the penalty that our sins deserve. He died in our place. That response from God is intended to bring joy to each of us, as well as praise and adoration as we worship our God. The, the message that God has given us demands response. Tonight, as we walk through this do-over that, that God gave Jonah, as we go through this coming week, we recognize that God may grant do-overs to us as well. Do-overs regarding the, the proclamation of, of the gospel message of Christ. Let's take advantage of, of those opportunities. If it's a do-over God gives us, let's grab that do-over and, and do it well. Let's remember that, that the message that God has given us demands a response. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word. As we continue to look at the book of Jonah, as we have this evening, we are challenged. Father, this evening we're challenged by his obedience, and we pray that we would likewise be obedient. Be obedient to what you have called us to proclaim to the world around us. May we have great joy in the forgiveness that is part of the message you've given us. May we joyfully magnify Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.